Welcome to the Impact Nations podcast. This is a live recording of episode 314, uh, and this is our second in uh, a three-part series that we're doing with Brad Jerzak. Welcome, Brad. Thanks for having me again. It's good yeah. to see you. Um, and what we've been discussing is um, Dad's three-part series that we've been doing on the podcast, uh, discussing the mystery of the cross. <clears throat> and if you were with us a couple weeks ago, we were discussing uh, the ex- how to uh, approach the cross more experientially um, and how to embrace the suffering of the cross. This week, we're going to go a little bit more into the theology of the cross uh, and really looking at two... Uh, theological traditions, shall we say. Uh, Dad, you referred to them as as theories, or at least you referred to PSA as a theory uh, when you were doing your teaching last week. So we're looking at uh, penal substitutionary atonement, which we will refer to as PSA, and we're looking at Christus Victor. So Brad, thanks so much for joining us and helping us to navigate these, uh, at times, difficult waters, I think. Yeah, they, it's difficult but and hard work at times, but it's the hard work of getting the good news right so that we're sowing something good from the very foundations. And a lot of this is around what is our theology of the cross? What is a high view of the cross? And in fact, what is the cross? Mm-hmm. You know, And so um, it's important that we talk about this because for those who've only known PSA, as their theology of the cross and their gospel, when you begin to think about other and alternative and earlier ways that it was presented as gospel, gospel. Um, when you begin to you you start wondering, are we going to lose the cross? It's like absolutely not. In fact, it's the foundation of everything, but in and the axis of the universe. <laughs> hmm. So, um, so so we want to work through this so that we keep keep. Uh, growing in how well we can share the good news with people. Amen. Yeah, that's good. I I know Brad that even uh, the our impact uh, partners uh, that are preaching now the gospel in different countries, as you know, the next generation's doing it. We are we are meeting deliberately these days around that question: What is our gospel? And yeah. uh, I think it's we want it to be issue. true. We want it to be true and faithful, to, to but and also effective, right? And and yeah. and healthy. So I'm grateful to have conversation partners like you, who are practicing this on the ground globally. So is that what you mean, Brad, when you say a high view of of the cross? Well, um, so what? Let's review what I just said. I, I said true, effective, faithful, and healthy. Um, that's a description of how I share it, but mm-hmm. maybe, maybe I'd want to even say more about a high view of the cross is one that puts the cross at the center of the universe and where the cross is specifically about a revelation of the love of God through Jesus Christ. That would be a high view of the cross. And, and, uh, maybe even we could, we could emulate some of the early church fathers who talked about how high and wide and long and deep. Mm-hmm the cross is. Hmm. And so Ephesians 3 becomes this beautiful statement that the cross itself is, is, is so expansive and inclusive that there, there is nothing outside of its impact. There is nobody and nothing that it cannot 
save and that um, the power of the cross over Satan, sin and, and death is, is absolute and victorious. And so so that's kind of what I mean by it. And and I do think when your dad talks about um, uh, Christus Victor, um, we really aren't talking about an atonement theory. We're talking about the gospel as it was preached in the first four centuries of the church. Yeah. So you mentioned the first four centuries, uh, Dad. You you talked about that as well in, in terms of a shift at uh, in the I guess it was the fifth century. Do you mind just kind of very quickly recapping what started to change around that time in terms of the understanding of what was happening on the cross? Who, your dad or I? Uh, either one of you. Let's get with you, Brad. <laughs> um, I you know I think I. I believe that the big shift happened around 400 AD when, when uh, Augustine of Hippo began to think in terms of, of um, uh, sort of a, let's see, that the mass of humanity uh, w was born guilty, was, was born damned, massa damnata. The mass of humanity was born damned by Adam's, sin and bore his guilt and then this this then um and, and that that salvation was christ walking through the graveyard of humanity and electing to raise some from the dead and the those who he raised from the dead um through no it wasn't even through a faith response the faith response would be a result of that but by raising some to life um, they come to faith and those will be saved and the rest he chooses to leave damned forever. And in fact, then they are punished in eternal conscious torment for the condition they were born in. And to me, this is a horrendous, a horrendous departure from the gospel as it was preached before that. And, you know, we consider him a Latin saint. He was prolific. He was magnificent. He wrote in his confessions are profound psychological treaties, and and you're going to find a lot of gems in Augustine. But like that's right at the center of his soteriology. That's our word for theology of salvation. And so his theology of salvation is, um, puts a crack in the foundations of the gospel as it was preached in the West. That is only exacerbated later um, through other theologians. That to me, that's the hinge point where it started going really sideways. Dad, did you have anything to add to that? I just agree. Uh, one of the things, I took a little bit of a time early on in the teaching on this section to talk about a term Brad and I talked about the other day. It's, it's commonly called original sin. It's, uh, it's probably not that great of a term. Uh, so all I'm saying is I agree with Brad that, uh, that as I came at it, I thought this is... This is uh, a key point, a, a hinge where we started to go off in a in a different direction. Um, you mentioned earlier in early in your talk, Dad. You, you talked about Christ reconciling all things to Himself. Yeah, uh, and you, you quoted Second uh, Corinthians five. Um, or sorry, you you were quoting uh, what was it First Corinthians. Uh, my notes have just gone, so there you go. But uh, what I wanted to ask you about was if if Christ had reconciled all things to Himself, 
why is it that Paul talks about himself and, and his colleagues having the ministry of reconciliation? Second um, Corinthians 5, yeah. uh, he, he says, you know, we're ambassadors for Christ uh, and we're entreating you to be reconciled to God. Uh, if, if Christ has already reconciled all things to himself, why is Paul then going out with the ministry of reconciliation? Okay. The ministry of reconciliation is to uh, uh, what, what Paul says. It's to proclaim that good news. He's not saying that we are the reconcilers, although I believe reconciliation on the human uh, plane is, uh, is one of the, the markers of following Christ. Um, reconciliation, I think, in one sense, takes two parts. If, if, you're, if you're mad at me, and we're mad at each other for a long time, and then I, I say, hey, let's reconcile. I'm offering you whatever it takes. I want to reconcile. And you say, not interested. Um, uh, this is why Paul is saying we have a ministry of reconciliation, because we, we need to go out and say, you are reconciled. He's already done it. You know, it, it, reconciling all things, that, that word all has become so important to me as I've read through the scriptures, um, the New Testament, um, over these last several years. I mean, it's everywhere. It, it's Second it, Corinthians 5 is so strong. Um, but there's so many places. Colossians 1, um, all means all. Now, Brad may differ, but I think all means all. I think that what Christ did was a complete reconciliation to all the cosmos. There, there's a, the, the things visible and invisible. Um, but reconciliation requires a response. Uh, what do you think, Brad? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I actually remember the first time I heard you preach on Colossians 1 many years ago. Oh. <laughs> and, and, and you you were doing all, 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 and then it's like you got to, he's reconciled all to himself. And then I'm like, does, he, does, does Steve understand that it's not just all believers, but it's all? And you, and you do, and you have, and you've unpacked that so beautifully. I um, that and I think that's the problem is so many have said well and this would be a classic Calvinist move that I would have made back in the day I would have said all meant the elect that's not yeah. what Paul says all means all but um, and it's important I, a couple of things are really important that you've just said because there is a summons to respond so why all right so first of all God never needed to be reconciled to us so what Christ, because he's never turned from us, mm -hmm. <laughs> he never ceased to be merciful, the all merciful one to us, but we had turned from him. And so in, in the incarnation, on behalf of humanity and the universe, Christ turns towards his father on our behalf. In other words, he's he's already represented us in, in that the truth of reconciliation. Um, so... He reheads. It's a it's a head transplant. Adam is no longer the head of humankind. Jesus is the head of humankind, and with his head, he turns us back to the Father. That's what he comes to. He turns us back to the Father. But then, 
but and that's the truth of our being. We have been reconciled. But what I just heard you say, Steve, and I agree with so strongly is now then Paul says, so be reconciled. In other words, make the truth of your being the yes. way of your being. Um, as Christ has united himself to you and turned you back to God. Now, unite yourself to Christ and, and, and um, consent to what he's to what he's done so that it can become your experience of salvation. So the salvation that is ours also then becomes ours as we appropriate it. And I think some of some of those who have heard us, they've oversteered perhaps and think, well, now we're all reconciled, so there's so we don't need to respond. We have never once said that. <laughs> We've always said there's a summons to respond so that you can yeah. come into the experience of this truth. And that's that's if, if is that what you mean by the ministry of reconciliation? Yeah, it is, and I agree. There's a summon to response. That's what that would that's what puts me on airplanes around the world and so many others, because I bring this good news that it's already done, and and now I'm I'm just what you said. I'm inviting you to respond. I am basically I am often in, am inviting them to recognize and. Thank Jesus for what he already did, and he is, he's in you. He is in everything. There isn't an atom of the cosmos that is without Christ. We would agree with that? Yes. Therefore, how can there be people who are without Christ? They are without the understanding, without the experience, without living on the benefits, but there cannot be any place that is without Christ. Well, let me let me ask you this about those who are without Christ, because um, Dad, you you mentioned something uh, during that teaching that we those who listened to the podcast, the the audio version, would have heard just last week. Uh, you said, and I quote: "It's not God who stands against us; it's the law." And you said, you know, a careful reading of Romans is going to verify that. Um, but in reading Romans, like I, I think of Romans five ten. <clears throat> that says, uh, just quoting the New Living Translation that I've got in front of me, for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, and Brad, I'll start with you. What do you make of that verse? Are unbelievers enemies of God then? Is that what Paul is saying? He was, what, what he, sorry, are you in, is that Romans 5? Yeah, Romans 5, yeah. Yeah, First what, what, what he, the point he's trying to make there is that he, um, he, he gives three layers. He'll say, those of you who are ignorant, he, he, already, he already came and died for you. Those who, were, those who were sinners, he already forgave you. Even those who are enemies, he's reconciled. So basically he's saying, regardless of your orientation to, to God, whether it was ignorance or simply sin or absolute animosity, in all of those cases, grace has already showed up on the scene. And this is why it's so important that we move from this horrid kind of transactional quid pro quo salvation idea where if you do this, then he will save you or he will reconcile you or he will forgive you. Um, and we move it to a reciprocal relationship that the new that both the old and new covenant were always about a spousal relationship 
where God has loved us with an everlasting faithful love of a husband who would never abandon us. But even whether we ignored our divine spouse, whether we um, busied ourselves with other things or whether we actually became hostile towards him and took on other lovers, you know, this is Hosea. The good, the good news is that, that, um, that, that did not impact his love for us at all. And so, so, so it seems to me that, that Romans 5 is, is saying w whether you are a Jew or a Gentile, whether you're just uh, uh, ignorant of God or, or openly hostile to him, here's the, here's the good news. Grace has already opened its arms to you, and it looks like the cross. And now um, come home, you know, uh, uh, and, and turn back to the light and, and participate in, in Christ's orientation of of surrender to his father and you will find out that everything changes isn't there a book like called that <laughs> so uh, that's that's how i'm taking romans 5 it's just the grace precedes the grace of forgiveness and reconciliation precedes our response that's the that's the shift it also generates the response hmm. when you hear this good news um the news will be so good that we're, we're meant to turn back to him. And that that's not a new thing. That's why I bring up Hosea a lot. It was always this way. Um, that in fact, at the end of Hosea, he says, here's what you're going to, what's going to happen. If you don't repent, I will. <laughs> in other words, the things that the natural consequences that the law described, I, 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 I'm going to undo those. Um, by sending such good news that the good news, the kindness of God will lead to repentance. It's not that the repentance of the sinner leads to the kindness of God. That's the big shift. And if I could just the just to, to uh, back that up, uh, this is exactly what increasingly, as I've understood better, this gospel increasingly. Uh, what you said is my experience where people just respond. Res they respond wholeheartedly. They respond almost immediately. Uh, they, I, I remember sharing this in a room of uh, Roma of gypsies, and I counted there were 26 in this little one-room house, 26 immediately and joyfully turned to Christ. There was no bargaining. There was no trying to, wow. well, let me come at it this way. Well, let me try to explain. It was just they understood that this has already been done. He's already here. He's already with me. And now I, I just, this is the good news that I turn into that truth that's always been there. And um, not only, of course, do I see so many people come to Christ, but the joy with which they come to Christ um, it's ended the long discussions. It's ended the long apologetics approach. It's gone. Um, th we, this is the good news we are made for. And mm -hmm. this is not theory for me. It's wherever I go. Uh, and it makes me get teary because I just see how beautiful this gospel is how beautiful this Jesus is. And we were made for beauty. And, um,
So all I'm doing is underlining what you're saying with my reality all over the world. Um, it's yeah. a very, I've, very good gospel. I've, I've seen that in what, in what you do for years. And to me, it sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the beginning. You go into places. You know, there's a real critique of, you know, let's not go colonize. Well, actually, we, we are called to colonize darkness with light. Yes. So you go into a place where they are under the delusion that, uh, and a blindness that God, that they need to appease the gods, that they need to manipulate the gods, that they need to make sacrifices to the gods. They, all quid pro quo. And so this could be, this could be, um, you know, transactionalism, whether they're a Hindu or, or a Christian. But let's say if, if there's a darkness there, it's, uh, the, this this delusion of, of who God is and how He relates to them. When Paul says that the but but the God who said let there be light says let there be lights in your heart and He removes the blinder. What does that? Um, I think it's the preaching of the good news. The message yeah. itself removes the blinder. The message itself is the command let there be light. And it and so what you're seeing is a heart response when we get the when we are getting we're getting warmer to to what the gospel is, it generates the heart response. Yeah, it does. It does, and we don't have to try to augment it. We don't have to really clarify it. We don't. We certainly don't bargain with it. It's a proclamation of of very very good news. You know, one of the verses I've always loved is uh, in. Uh, um, Mark four twenty eight. The the kingdom is the farmer who plants the seed, and he goes away, and it says, "And all by itself, it produced a crop." Wow! I love that verse. There's just it, there is a supernatural fruitfulness uh, capacity in the gospel itself. Hey, can I ask a, a different question? Is this Tim? You're you're interviewing, but I'm curious about something. Uh... Yeah, maybe stick a pin in it because I just I want to touch on something you just said in terms okay. of because you said something, and I, that's I not to, the same I, stick of fork in me, is it? <laughs> no, that's different. <laughs> uh, you're not done yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> He's still basting. That's right. um, you talked about. I think you used the word clarify just a moment ago. You know, you don't have to clarify things or, or, or clear everything up. And I've heard, to be honest, by reform teachers i've heard the opposite of like paul preached a very clear gospel and who this jesus was and what the necessary response was and things like that and and um the passage that jumps out to me in reference to that is when you've got the demon possessed girl following them and she's uh, you know oh you know these men are uh preaching the most high God or whatever. And uh, her verbiage makes it sound like she could be referring to Zeus. And so they turn around and cast the demon out and then, you know, make a clear gospel uh, in terms of who, who this Jesus is. Um, where's the fine line between that? Because, I mean, you and I go into places where they've got other, there are other religious traditions there. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of yep. going to Sikh temples and preach the gospel where they, they have many gurus and things like that. And so... Uh, one of our challenges, and we talk about this a lot kind of in the office behind the scenes, one of our challenges is that we're preaching to people who really have no paradigm for this, and we, we may only have a few minutes with them. And so are we, are we failing to do the gospel justice by not 
being able to clarify and give a, you know, a, a broader understanding of who this Jesus was and what the work of the cross was? Whew, good question. Um, I personally um, made a decision a lot of years ago that no matter how I start the preaching, um, I, get, I have to finish at the cross. And so I do. Uh, where uh, that part has changed radically is as I've moved away from PSA, for those who are just coming on, that's penal substitutionary atonement. As I've moved away from that, the uh, understanding of the cross is, is, I present that in a, in a, in a much more, uh, well, in a different way. Let's, we'll get to that later. And so uh, you certainly can't just say, well, Jesus loves you and he's, he's great and invite him in your life. Although sometimes I've only got a few minutes like really a few minutes. Yeah. And I will, I will say, um, he is God and he's come to rescue you. And he did rescue you. And as you turn to him, I mean, we've talked many times, Brad, you and I've talked about how John 10, 10, you know, a decade ago became, uh, a pivot verse for me that there is a turning. I mean, Jesus himself said, repent, metanoia, turn. The kingdom is here. So there's always this turning. We're back to the ministry of reconciliation. But this is what happens, uh, son, when the longer you do this, you kind of recognize I got 20 minutes or I got five minutes. Mm -hmm. And and so, um, so that dictates how much, quote, theology. Uh, and you know I love theology. I'm not against theology. Uh, but that dictates, for me, this central message of rescue, reconciliation, restoration. Yeah. And uh, Brad, your context is often different, and we've we've heard stories from you before, and just uh, sharing the gospel relationally uh, with people, which the implication being that perhaps there's more time to express that. Do you have some thoughts on how clear one must be on on exactly? what the work of the cross was or on, on what Christ accomplished? Yeah, I, th I think that's what we're working on, right? So so um, where your question started from, I think, was like when, um, what's his name? Steve Stewart. When, when, Steve, <laughs> when Steve said, you know, without the need to clarify, that's, we don't need to clarify a clear gospel, we're, but we're working to get to what is the clear gospel. And, and so... Um, when when Steve shared with the Roma people, their their immediate response and their willingness to surrender their lives to the love of this God tells me that he had a clear gospel that didn't need further clarification. The problem is that's not what's been happening for centuries and centuries. And so, um, so we had folks thinking, even PSA itself is like, well, we're not satisfied with the gospel that was preached in the book of Acts, so we're going to clarify it. And they, in fact, didn't. They obscured it by adding, the, adding all this other um, uh, implications of retribution and appeasement. and all. You just don't see that in the preaching of the gospel in mm -hmm. the book of Acts ever once. Or in Christ, when he's preaching, it's not about... Well, you know, you have to believe that that the Father is going to punish my sin. No, it's turn to Christ and 
And uh, in turning to Christ, we see that his life and his death and his resurrection actually bring us into fullness of life, which is a, probably a better translation that for our context than eternal life, because we imagine eternal life as someday after you die. But in the, in the Gospel of John, it's, it's absolutely not about that. Eternal life is knowing Christ now and how that extends into eternity. But even, and so, um, so I'm, um, in my context, it's, it's also, it's, it's very similar, but so I might use it slightly different language. Let's say what I talk about 12 step recovery a lot, but it's the same thing. It's acknowledging number one, that I'm powerless over my addictions. And number two, I start, I come to believe that there's a, there's a God who can rescue me that I can actually he can change what I can't change. And how will that happen? Step three, it's like by surrendering my life and my will to his care and his love. Well, uh, I don't hear that being a lot different than what your dad is saying, but then um, um, wh where then it, it can go from there into just like more of a generic turning to the light and experiencing his life. Then it's like, wh what does knowing that it's also a lamb who was slain and risen add to that? Ah, it means... I don't have to live in shame anymore mm. that he's provided for my and forgiven my sin. And most of all, that uh, death is not a thing anymore. Um, I, I don't have to be afraid of that. And, you know, and, and so it, it, this perfect love revealed on the cross drives out those kind of fears. And um, so it's surrender, surrender, surrender. Well, that's turn, turn, turn. Right. Mm. And it, I, I think probably far better than the word repentance, uh, conversion actually is a better translation of metanoia because in this turning, there's a transformation that happens. I'm transformed in the turning towards love and light. I'm converted. He converts me. I don't convert me. I turn, but in my turning, he convert, he changes, he changes and transfigures me. Yeah, he does. So, he does. <clears throat> so a couple of questions on that. Um, Where to start first uh i think about like the word the phrase penal substitution you know there's this it starts with the word penal there's this assumption of punishment that is due to us right and christ s s uh, stepped into our place to take our punishment dad you referred to the courtroom drama where you know the the lawyer who is the prosecutor suddenly steps in and, and takes the the punishment on our behalf um and i'm i'm wondering where that comes from and and is there a place for that in uh in christus victor theology um romans 2 2 i've just got in front of me and again sometimes these are just poor english translations and so we should talk about that too um Again, my default is the New Living Translation, and it uses the word punishment here. Romans 2, two says, And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. And it, it's, you know, it's coming out of and going into a list of all of the various ways that humans can be terribly wicked. So is that where this idea of punishment came from, is, is verses like that? And if so, what do you say to verses like that? Well, first of all, that's really pulling it out of context. Um, Romans chapter one and two, you've got a diatribe, it's a, which is a form of, of New Testament rhetoric 
in which which Paul uses often, and he quotes his opponent and then responds to it. Mm -hmm. So the verse you just quoted isn't to be taken as straightforward theology. He's about to respond to that. So think of it with two voices. Well, we know God's going to punish all those who evildoers, and he's going to get them. Oh, and then Paul answers it, and he goes, come on, oh man. Have you forgotten it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance? So, so there's two voices at work there. That's one way to read that, that I think is a lot healthier. And the other is this, that when we talk about wrath or punishment, I think it's wrath actually is, is, is the word. Um, or, you know, that, that we've, often, we've often seen God as the agent of punishment for sin. He's the agent of punishment. But what Paul will go on to say in... Um, it, it, as he proceeds to Romans, is like actually sin is the punisher. So there is a punishment in that sense. Like the wages of sin. So we're talking about, about a payment, a punishment, a fine, a penalty. Who imp what imposes that penalty, that penalty or that wage on me? Sin does it. And then he responds to that in the next very next phrase. But the free gift of God. So you've got sin at work and you've got God at work. What does sin do? It extracts wages through punishment. What does God do? He gives free gifts of grace. So which do you want to experience? Which do you, so, um, so in that sense, did Christ experience the penalty of sin? Of, of course he did, but he didn't experience God punishing him. What happened was he, he experienced what we experienced, which is death. He experienced the penalty of our sin which was murder. He experienced crucifixion. So in that, but that's not what penal substitution taught. So I want, I want to say, yeah, there's a way to talk about the penalty of sin, which mm -hmm. is death and Christ experienced that, but that's never, that's not what Kelvin meant. That's not what the Calvinists meant. There are, there are subtle nuanced versions where you can draw penal into it. But like, my question is why is that just to appease the Calvinists? <laughs> Is it to confuse them? Is it isn't it a bit disingenuous then to say, well, we're gonna we're gonna hang on to the to the penal word because you know we don't want to lose those donors, <laughs> you know, or something like that, right? Um, uh, um, oh yeah. Uh, but there, but there is there is certainly there is certainly the idea that that there is that that sin kills, and that Jesus stepped into the ring against death on our behalf and in fact with us and he experienced that he, he, uh, and and that he overcame that but it's but but it was always like PSA was always that the father was angry and he had to do this and he, if he didn't do this he couldn't forgive you, which is that's just heresy I think yeah yeah because his justice demanded it right yeah under yeah. Anselm his honor and then Calvin took it further his justice can I ask you a question? Because uh, I experienced a little of this, and you get it uh, in spades. What is it that makes people nervous when we don't talk about a retributive God? When we, what makes them nervous when we we say that God's wrath was not poured out on His Son? What 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 is it, Brad? That in the church, 
I go all over the world with a gospel and get the response we've talked about. Within the church, you and I both know, there is, at, at minimum, I can see people psychologically withdrawing from me, sometimes relationally. And, and beyond minimum, you get an angry response. Why is that? I don't know. I guess I I want to start by saying why is it an angry response? So the anger this the anger is coming because their motive is faithfulness. And so when they have attached the motive of faithfulness to a particular message they received as the gospel and you come with a different script, it feels to them like you are being unfaithful and calling them to be unfaithful. And that's why I, I, I do this work with, with the scriptures and with the early church fathers to say, I agree, let's be faithful. And in fact, I'm not sure we have been, and I'm willing to look at it again. Um, are you? Because I don't know about you, but I did invest in PSA, I'm talking about, let's say someone's opposing me, like, have you ever written 185 master's thesis apologetic for penal substitution? I did, and I, I had to write off that investment. Are you, but I did it because I believe in faithfulness to the gospel. And I'm not asking you to do that. I'm just asking you to, uh, to, to look at to look at these texts again and look at the gospel as it was preached in Acts and look at the how the early church fathers would see it so that we could be faithful together. So that's one level. The faithfulness issue is what generates the anger, I think. Um, the clinginess, the attachment to it, in addition to wanting to be faithful to you know, what I thought was the faith of our fathers, um, I, I do think there's a, a, a deep level addiction to retribution. There's a commitment to it. We don't want to let go of because we think if and this is the older brother talking from the, the parable of the prodigal sons. If if what you're saying is true, then then you're then you're just going to let the younger son in <laughs> after all the slaving I've done. You know, I think I think you know before we let that that son in, there better be a punishment, and if not on. The, and okay, Jesus has provided. And, and so somehow our addiction to retribution and the idea of retribution, we've, we've imposed that onto our image of God when Christ, in fact, came to undo it. And miraculously, we turned the cross itself into an act of retribution. I'm like, I can't think of something more. That's as sinful as crucifying the Son of God. <laughs> that is, it's uh, you know, uh, whatever. But uh, um, yeah, so there's, just to summarize then, I think there is a real there is a real commitment to being faithful to what the gospel is, and we need to challenge our own faithfulness in that. It's like we I want to grow, I want to be faithful. Can you can you begin to see that's what I'm up to, right? But if if they won't let go of the attachment to wrath hmm. and to which is a particular way, a fairly shallow way of reading the Bible, it's like, well, okay, I, if you don't want to grow, I can't help you grow. But when you're ready to grow, I guess we can go there. And it, it, sometimes it just takes time. And people 10 years later 
contact me again and say, oh, you know, I, you were right. Or, or worse, <laughs> they'll just say, um, I discovered this amazing thing. It's like, I told you this 10 years ago and you like hated me. <laughs> and, and now you've discovered it. Isn't that good for you? But okay, hallelujah. I, I, it took me years and years and years to come to here and I recognize I'm not done the journey. So I'm curious about that, Brad. You, you mentioned you're not done the journey. This is an unfair question to drop on you out of the blue. And so I'm happy to kind of file it, but I would love an answer from you at some point. Um, sure. I'm, I'm interested to know what you've changed your mind on recently, on something that you held as a, an understanding or belief and, you know, in the last year or two have really come to, to a, a new understanding of that thing. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a huge, it's a mind blower. Um, and I'm reading this through people like father John bear, but this idea that there's no such thing as a pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, here's the mistake that John bear thinks we made that we made we, that we have this word who exists apart from the incarnation before Jesus comes along. And then Jesus comes along and he's incarnate. And so, so from a temporal point of view, from a human point of view, living on a timeline, of course I would say that, right? 10 years before Jesus is walking the earth, does Christ exist? Yes. Is he incarnate yet? Well, of course not, because he's not born yet. So from, from Earth's point of view, that m makes a lot of sense. But that's actually not how the New Testament teaches it. The New Testament teaches us that it's the Lord Jesus Christ, incarnate, crucified, and risen. He is the Word of God. So we must never think about the Word of God without reference to the lamb slain and risen. In other words, uh, because the pre-incarnate Christ didn't come from before Jesus. There is no before for the word. He comes from eternity. And so in eternity, was there ever a time, <laughs> there we go, was there ever a, was there ever a point in eternity when the, the, when, when the divine word was, was not directly related to the one on the cross? Nope. So we even would say, so I'm even starting to see it this way, that, that, that when, I, when I approach the whole idea of who Jesus Christ is, I don't think of it as a timeline in which the incarnation is a chapter of the word's existence. The Lord Jesus Christ is the focal point of all eternity. That cross, that cross in, that, in that sense, then, um, he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But it wouldn't be true if he wasn't slain in space and time. So that's pretty a bunch of theological stuff. But here's why it matters. We don't know God, the word, except through the lamb slain and risen. That's how we know him. He's our hermeneutic in that sense. We, we know the nature of God through the cross and that, the cross, that God has revealed himself to us through the cross. And what he's revealing is something who he always was. So he becomes what he becomes what he always is. A lamb. He's always been and always will be a lamb from eternity. But for that to be true, it had to happen in real life, in real 
in, in, in the world. And so um, instead of me thinking about Christ floating out there without, without humanity, this is the human God, you know, and it's just, so I'm still unpacking that, but that would be a big, that would be an example of in the last year, my mind has been blown by that notion. And the only way I can, the way to, the way to see it is that the word didn't come from before he came from above and that the cross isn't a, isn't part of a human timeline. The cross is the, is the axis around which the cosmos revolves. And so, so that's kind of, thanks for asking. I know it's, it's a bit technical, but it's, again, it's about the centrality of the cross and why we preach it as the revelation of God, victory of God. Regular listeners know that this is around the time that I interrupt the podcast and tell you about some project or journey that I'm really excited about. But if you happen to be on planet Earth at the moment, you'll understand why we don't have any upcoming journeys of compassion and the majority of our projects have been temporarily suspended. However, we still have a very important mission before us. In fact, this is perhaps the most urgent mission we've had in a long time. People are starving. You see, in most of the developing world, people get paid on a daily basis and purchase their food on a daily basis with yesterday's wages. All over the globe, the economy has come to a standstill. People aren't allowed out of their homes, which means they aren't allowed to work. No work, no food. In Uganda, things have become very dangerous as this desperation rises. But we can help. We are helping. In the last 24 hours, as a result of our generous donors, Impact Nations has sent thousands of dollars to both India and Uganda, where our partners are feeding people who would otherwise starve. You can be a part of this effort. For as little as $25, we're able to feed a family of five with basic staples for a week. Will you join us? Will you feed a family? We always talk about rescuing lives, and I promise you that it has never been more true than it is right now. To feed the starving, to rescue lives, go to impactnations.com feeding right now. $25 will sustain a family for a week. Let's do this. Hey, Brad, I wondered, we've been experimenting with something um, here at Impact Nations over the last week or so as we're all living in isolation, self-isolation, social distancing and such, uh, trying to find community. And so we've actually, in conversations such as this, just kind of shared the the Zoom link and invited people to come on and just have a chat with us and stuff. Would you be open to having a chat with anybody who's out there watching right now? Yeah. All right. Well, I'm uh, going to quick... Uh, bear with me one sec. I'm going to copy this uh, URL. If you're watching on Facebook, if you head to impactnations.com slash family, uh, you'll find the stream there so you can keep watching. Um, but if you're going to log into Zoom, uh, which I've just pasted the link in the uh, chat box down in the lower right corner of that, um, uh, if you're going to log in, just make sure you hit uh, mute on your uh, Facebook feed so we don't start getting duplicate uh, feedback loops or whatever. Uh, I didn't have a chat box up here. Uh, down in the lower right of your uh, impactnations.com slash family, uh, there is a little... Hey, Jenny. Oh. Um, Jenny joined the meeting. Boom. Hi, Jenny. Uh, <clears throat> so if you don't see it, there's just a little tab there. If you click on that, out pops the chat and... Jenny has found it, so I know it's there. Uh, Whoa. That's Jenny, great. meeting. Boom. Somehow I'm joining the meeting as well. That's just crazy. <laughs> Except I've got more has, hair. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, she has more hair than all of us, even if she includes Steve's back. I mean, 
<laughs> Sorry, man. It's April Fools. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> so, uh, hi, Jenny. Welcome. Hi. How are you guys? We're doing great. Yeah, I have a question. I like to move um, in the spirit as a mother and to speak life into people and to care for them and their needs. But I often don't find myself talking about the cross or about Jesus. And I wonder if I'm kind of missing it or if they're just receiving it more directly. Steve? Oh, I thought that was for you. <laughs> he's, st he's still like angry that I mentioned his hair. So. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> all right. Um, well, Jenny, just in the context of us talking about the cross, um, uh, I just think that uh, you can't force that into every conversation. You have to trust what the Spirit's doing. There's never a point in taking people where they're not wanting to go. Um, and when, when you do sense an opening, then I believe you shared in some of the ways we've talked about today and, and we've talked about, because I know you're part of our house church that meets here. Uh, we've talked about it in the past. So uh, I think it's really important. So often in evangelism, especially as we are just being hospitable and connecting, we're not even listening completely because in the back of our mind, we're thinking, how can I get in a word for the Lord here? How can I explain salvation? And I think that, uh, first of all, Jesus is not very anxious about that, so we shouldn't be. And uh, secondly, uh, it comes back to don't ask questions. Don't answer questions they're not asking. Uh, it, it's just in the context of caregiving and friendship this is what leads uh, on their timing. Believing in the work of the Holy Spirit in their life uh, leads into the place where you can talk. So that's, for me, I think that's a lot healthier than trying to figure out how, you know, Jenny, back in the, back in the 70s and 80s, I, I shudder to think of some of the courses I took on evangelism because I've always had this, you know, thing for the lost. And it was all about... They, they should have really called the courses manipulation. Um, <laughs> it was all about how can we work it around and how do you answer this and that and the other. Look at how look at what Jesus did, you know? Yeah. And um, so that's my answer. That's my answer. That, that inspires me. Can I say something too? We will allow it. Okay, thanks. Um, yeah, so what, what Steve's describing in a sense is, is what I do. Uh, oh, here's my book plug. In my book, In... I N. Oh, um, is that that book in? In, yeah. I've heard that's an incredible book. I hope you've read it. Yeah, <laughs> I did so, read it. <laughs> oh, good. So what I do there, I, I should point to a better book, which is is the Gospel of John in chapter one. It, it, you know, he, it's Christ reveals himself as the light, and Christ is revealed as the Word, and, and anybody. He reveals himself as the light to everyone coming into the world. And so a lot of it is, which is a met, the light is actually a metaphor for love there. So if you would, if we would turn to the love of God, if we present, so God is love. And then, and then at some point we may say, you know, and did you realize that there's God who is love also um, 
came as a person uh, was embodied in Jesus. And okay, and then we turn to Jesus and we discover that in Jesus, we, we experience life, the life of God. So he, we have God who loves us and now we can experience the life of God. Um, at some point, what I love how you put it, Steve, like let's, let's answer what they're asking. At some point, I also bump into, but, but I might bump into their shame. And it's like, but how can he love me? And can I have this life if I'm such a wreck? Or if, I, if, I, if I've done this or that bad thing? It's like, oh, no, let me tell you about also, here's something to note. There's nothing, there's nothing he can't wash. And here's how I know it. There's nothing he can't forgive and no one he can't release. And here's how I know it. And then at that point, I become like in John 1, I become like John the Baptist who says, the word and the light you've already met also came as a lamb and you don't, you don't have to live in shame anymore. You can be free. And so I was just saying this last couple of days with a few people who, you know, they, they come out of abuse and they come out of addictions. And it's like, I know he loves me, but I can't ever be clean. It's like, well, let's ask him. It's like, oh, I've, you know, I've, I, I make all things new. I can make anyone clean. And then that's where the cross might come in, um, in terms of, uh, of um, an answer to a specific thing in a person but and i i know that even when i was eight years old i struggled deeply with guilt so i needed to hear that that i've been forgiven and that he wouldn't leave me mm. very good that's a good answer um, hey, Isaiah, do you have a question i was just gonna say oh sorry <laughs> yeah oh yeah i do le- i gotta keep quiet you're leading this not me <laughs> <laughs> and then my screen shows up as tim stewart because i'm hijacking his uh Oh. Zoom account for the moment. Anyway, you've never looked so good, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Brad, you talked about sin as a punisher, or the wages of sin is death, um, which is a little bit of a mind shift for me in the beginning because I've thought of sin as like a almost like a genre of action. And so to think of it as a punisher makes it seem more like a being, which, you know, is odd. But anyway, um, I guess my question is two part. From where or who does sin draw the authority to punish? Um, What does that look like? And then the wages of sin is death. And what exactly is that? Is that? this first death? Is it the second death as it's been described in the past? What is that punishment? Yeah. So of course I am personifying sin at that point in the same way someone with an addiction would talk about their addict. (laughs) My addict is telling me who's you are the addict. (laughs) Yeah. But, but that's a voice. That's a, Oh, it has a voice. You know, so we're always personifying because it's helpful actually. Um, so in the case of sin, uh, I, I'm talking about like very just how life works. When I turn away from love, um, I am doing self-harm and harming others. Uh, so Ken Tanner yesterday, um, uh, he, he talked about this on an on a open table conversation we had online. He said, he said, sin is, sin is anything in us that does not, that cannot and does not participate in love. So 
Think about pun sin as a punisher this way. I'm oriented towards God and his light and love. I, I, uh, sorry, I have a call. I'm trying to not answer there. There we go. So I turn from the light of God and love, and that is an act of self-harm. That is sin. How is it self-harm? Well, it depends, right? So my willfulness gets me in all kinds of trouble. Addictions are easiest to see. So what, what is, where's the authority drawn from when, a, when someone overdoses? It's like, well, from me, from, from my turning. Um, and then there's all sorts of little ways and big ways that that can happen with, unfortunately too, it's like so much collateral damage. Sometimes my turning hurts others more than it hurts me, but that's, that's what I mean by sin as a punisher, turning from love and turning from light and turning from life um, creates a shadow. And in that shadow, all sorts of, all sorts of horrible things happen. In the old days, they used to call the horrible things that happen in that shadow, the wrath of God. But we've learned that it wasn't him doing it. It's not like, if you sin, I will kill you. It's like, no, if you sin, sin will kill you. Like ultimately. Um, and so, so that's the most basic, how you can just observe it at work in the world all the time. And it's not always literal death. Let's say if I turn mm -hmm. in, if I turn from love towards somebody in my family, what that sin, that turning, that shadow I'm making, it begins to kill the relationship. It kills the intimacy. There's a death and a real loss that I that I need to grieve. And what is it to repent? It's to turn back towards love. It's to reorient orient myself to to that self-giving love and radical forgiveness and so on. I, I hope that helps a little bit. It does. If I can tie in a little bit more of my question in addition, um, and the Steve, you've discussed how it's the law that stands against us rather than God. Mm -hmm. um, and then the idea of John 3.16 with a need for forgiveness. Um, and how does that all tie in with this sin and the consequences of sin just in this natural world almost where does the law standing against us tie in and where does forgiveness tie in you want to go for that brad I, I i also wanted to just before i answer that actually did you get an answer to the second part of your question about uh the second judgment i think is what you said uh, I think I presented that as an option, as perhaps that has to do with the wages of sin. Um, okay. And what I heard you say, Brad, was less the second death being the wages of sin, but rather just the natural consequences in this world. Yeah, Greg Boyd says it this way, that judgment is intrinsic to sin. It is not something God imposes over top of it. Um, and that connects to your law question. So let's just think about this in, in real life experience. I learned this from Archbishop Lazar. The law, the law describes the consequences of sin. And, and it would say this, um, I'm driving 60 miles an hour down the road. And then there's a sign that says corner ahead, 30 miles an hour. Um, that's the law. It's, it, if I take that corner at 60 miles an hour, it's not saying that a policeman will come and smash my car into a tree. <laughs> it's saying that, that speeding will smash your car into a tree. And, uh, and that's so dangerous to yourself that 
that um, we'll even impose a penalty if we catch you doing it. And hopefully that will stop you from doing that thing. Um, so, so, so law is more, when it comes to divine law, Jesus actually, um, his entire takeaway from the Old Testament law, I just love this. He tells us, I'm paraphrasing, but Jesus effectively says, here's my takeaway from the whole law and the prophets. Love God and love each other. And, and like, but what if I don't? Well, the law, under the law, law says, says you'll die. But guess what? Um, there's actually something greater than the law. It's called grace. And I've come to share that good news with you. And so, so um, we're, again, we're also personifying the law there like I did with sin, aren't we? We're like the law is against, well, how is the law against us? Well, I mean, it's describing, it's describing the wages of sin. It's like, what if, if the wages of sin is death, then I'm screwed. It's like, actually, you're not. We have grace for that. And, there is, and it, we, we see that grace on the cross. So, so there's the great grace is an answer to the law that says the wages of sin is death and that death is the end. It's like, um, I'm going to trump that with mercy. So, Steve, did I cover it or have I yeah. misinterpreted that? No, it's great. It's great. Um, Brad, my friend Karen says she's not in a position where she can jump in on the Zoom conversation, but she did type a question for us that I'll just I'll read verbatim. Um, okay. She says, in view of this conversation, what does discipleship look like as we mentor people who have turned to Jesus without any Christian framework? Um, where do we start on this journey together using an orthodoxy that is life-giving, full of joy? My, um, my phone just froze a lot, and, we're, and I think I'm going to lose battery before long. Um, but because it froze, can you repeat the question? Sure, no problem. So I got she says twenty percent of it. No problem. Uh, she says, in view of this conversation, and, and earlier we were talking about you know bringing the gospel to people who do not have any Christian background, such as when we're in Sikh temples. Um, and I know Karen actually is from a town that's well, your town, Abbotsford, which has a very high Sikh population there as well. Um, she says, in view of this conversation, what does discipleship look like as we mentor people who have turned to Jesus without any Christian framework? Where do we start on this journey together using an orthodoxy that is life-giving, full of joy? I would like, I would just start by telling them the story. And so discipleship would look like reading them, reading them through the gospels again and again and again. This was my practice as a youth pastor. I thought I, I have kids coming in one time ever to visit the youth group. They need to hear about Jesus. And so I would just, and, and the discipleship also then, as they were beginning to fall in love with Jesus by hearing the story and choosing to follow him because the love was drawing them, it was quite, that part was supernatural. It's like they would feel the magnetism of God's love. Well, then what's discipleship like look like in the Gospels? It did not look like going through a training manual or something. You know, there you've passed the training manual. It's like, what did they do? They preached the good news, healed the sick and cast out demons. It's like, when do we get to do that stuff? It's like, I don't know. Let, what if, what if we just always talk about Jesus, draw from the Gospels, and then pray for each other and pray for others? 
and go and, and share good news to the poor. So the, effectively, we what, what we did is during youth group meetings, we would have a time where those who were in need of Jesus care could get Jesus care as we prayed for each other. That became our greenhouse then to go and, and do. Uh, we especially loved going to places like Union Gospel Mission or down into some of the street street stuff where then um, and then they just began targeting like groups in their high school. Hey, let's go share this good news with everybody in the male, the men's volleyball team. <laughs> okay. Now let's go to the jazz band. Okay. Now let's go to, and what were they doing? They're inviting them to experience life in Christ and, and the ones who weren't confident to minister that them, the, that themselves, they could bring them to us. But our thing was to equip them to send them out with this good news. So it, it seemed to me that a good saturation of the gospels was a big part of it. Hmm. And so just again, if I disappear, it's because my phone, the battery died, but sure. we'll go as long as I can. Okay. I have a question for everybody. I know we're called to the unbelievers and we're called to actually to everybody, but I have a question as to can, do you personally maintain close relationships with unbelievers? I do. Yeah. I, in 12-step recovery, I, I, I'm a sponsor of some, some people who, are, uh, who would still identify as atheist, agnostic, or seeker. And, and their response to Christianity is, is of no consequence to me at this point. I just, I'm just trying to embody, um, uh, embody the good news that, uh, that God is loving, caring, forgiving, relational, and responsive, which is, that's 12-step. That's the God of 12-step recovery. So if, um, and I don't make that a condition. I don't make conversion a condition of, of friendship. Um, friendship comes with being in a community of people who desire to be free. And that may take 10 or 20 years, but I, to me also, it's not like I, I'm not doing friendship evangelism in the sense of I'll be your friend if I can convert you. And when I discover I can't, well, then, then I'll go on. find another friend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that happens all the time. Yeah. Wow, that sounds an awful lot like how Jesus would do it. <laughs> hey, Brad, can I just ask a question here? Because I've got folks listening who may not have uh, listened to the podcast last week. We've talked a fair bit about PSA, Penal Substitution Atonement. Could you give us a bit of a nutshell of Christus Victor, especially as it, as it relates to the victory over the the powers would you would you just touch on that a little sure. bit please christus victor is just latin for that christ is the victor he's won right and what did he win who did he win over what did he win over oh well he one way i talk about that is on the cross throughout his life but especially on the cross and in his resurrection he he conquers satan sin and death um, another way we could talk about that is he, he conquers darkness, dread, and death. Um, and um, when you use the word powers, people need to know that's a slightly technical word for talking about. It's not just that he's had to, had, had to take on our personal stuff, but there's also systemic sin. Yeah. 
that keeps people oppressed. And he's taking that on too and calling us to participate in his victory over that. Well, if so, there's an already part and a not yet to that too. So at the cross, really, I mean, he exposes the powers of this of state and religion as pseudo saviors and says they're not pseudo saviors they're beasts hmm. and those beasts have, are, have crucified him but they lose because he's he's risen from the dead and that means those beasts need not have fun they won't have final victory over us but we engage them um the church the the direction of the church is not towards heaven. It's towards Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail against you. Well, what are the gates of Hades in this world? It's it's these systemic sins and powers that bind and oppress people. And, and whatever church means, um, we're meant to assault those gates the way Jesus took on like death itself with Lazarus and he raised him from the dead. So, so we use this as analogy. Um, my wife preached on this this last week. It was that, that, that Christ has spoken our names and he's called us back to life. And then he's called us as believers um, in what he's doing to join in and, yeah. and remove the stones and remove the, remove the stones means all of the obstacles that the world puts in our way and remove the, the grave wrappings. And that's more the personal stuff, our shame, our wounding. Our, so that's the healing work we do with individuals, but the stones are very much about the powers. I think that, that keep their boot on people's necks and Christ came to defeat that. And he's raised up an army to do so like poverty or, or, or um, disease or whatever the, th the stuff you're working at really with impact nations, you're stone movers. Hmm. Hmm. That's good. Uh, <laughs> if I could just say to anybody who's listening, um, one of the most helpful, not one of the most helpful book uh, on this that, that Brad talked about in terms of the powers, uh, uh, Hawk your watch and buy uh, Walter Wink, uh, the powers that be. It is a terrific book, highly accessible. And we understand that the principalities and powers that Paul talked about were not just out there. They are spiritual, but they're in, as Brad said, in our system. So that's just a little plug. Walter Wink, the powers that be. Do we still have Brad with us? Well, that's a question. We lost his picture, Brad. Are you, do we still have you by audio? Perhaps... What he foretold has come to pass. <laughs> oh, dear. Hi, Catherine. <laughs> I would ask you if you had a question for Brad, but I think his battery died and we lost him. Do you have a question for Dad? <laughs> well, well, I missed the whole thing about the Sikhs and, and everything and what you say to people like that. And how do you... Yeah, I asked uh, Steve a while back, like, how, where do you put Jesus in the whole thing? How do you tell a Sikh? I know you're a God-fearing person. Let me reconcile you or let me tell you what was done for you. I don't know how to do that anymore. Well, one of the things that, that Brad talked about a few minutes ago, and I wholeheartedly agree, is... Uh, just begin to share the Jesus of the Gospels. 
that just begin to say, let me tell you a little bit about, and, and uh, in his case, he lived, he had people that would come and he would read through the gospels. But, but I think we tell some gospel stories. This is who he is. Um, you see, there's, there's a built-in attractiveness. We just saw a whole bunch more Sikhs come to Christ two weeks ago at India. And nobody, because you know this, we never get into debates, discussions, apologetics. We just tell them about this Jesus. Because everyone, uh, Jackie Pollinger once said, everyone in the world is made for Jesus. It's just that they don't know his name. And of course, because there isn't any part of the cosmos without him. So for me, I, I kind of steer people toward just telling about this wonderful Jesus, uh, almost narratively, um, more than, uh, you know, anything that's based on laws, principles, etc. cetera. Um, they're just people... You see, people are attracted to what we are attracted to. People's hearts turn toward what our hearts are turned toward. Uh, John Wesley said that uh, people will come for miles around to watch a person burn. He wasn't talking about martyrdom at the stake. He was talking about the, the love, the passion, the fire that's in us. And it doesn't have to be strong. You've got to listen. It, it, it attracts them. So... I am, uh, I guess I never share, I hope I never share apologetically, you know, whether I've been with, I've been with just about every major religion. I, probably I have been every major religion. And I'm just not thinking, okay, how can I tell you that what I'm saying is true, truer than what you know? I just tell them about this Jesus. And, um, and, you know, sometimes I get, as you know, I get to stand up in front of a crowd. But a lot of the time I'm just, I'm in a village and I'm just, hey, wow, let me tell you about this, Jesus. And I'll tell them some stories. You know, I'll tell them whichever, the woman at the well or the the, the guy who gets lowered through the roof. I was just reading that yesterday. Um, and understand what I said earlier, the all by itself principle, Matthew, uh, Mark. 428 the farmer puts the seed in and putting in the seed for me is I just tell them stuff and then all by itself because as you've heard me say the the authority is in the message itself did I answer your question I think so Good. I'd like to see it done yeah well <laughs> keep hanging with me when when this whole thing's done let's get on the other side of the border let's share it in uh Let's share it in uh, Juarez when we can do that. Then. Yeah, that's good. Well, folks, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I would thank Brad, but he's not here to hear me. So thanks, Brad, uh, for being a part of our discussion today. Uh, we're going to have Brad back again in two weeks uh, from this morning. Uh, and we'll do the same thing. Uh, so next week on the audio podcast, by the way, if folks, if you're not, uh, currently subscribed to the Impact Nations podcast, do that. I would urge you, if you just go to impactnations.com slash podcast, there's a big subscribe button at the top for any one of your favorite podcast uh, applications on your phone or whatever. Uh, subscribe, because then you're going to get that <laughs> weekly feed. Um, and so uh, one week from now, we're going to release uh, the third teaching on the, on the mystery of the cross. 
And then a week from then, so two weeks from now, we're going to have Brad back on to discuss that teaching and, and again, just start to unpack it a little bit. And we'll do the same thing, uh, open it up for for questions in person, in person, in air quotes, uh, uh, so that uh, Brad can further engage with those things. So thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, It's been a great pleasure, and we're looking forward to doing it again soon. Have a great week.